bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 21st, 2020. I do hope that you and your family are safe and well while you're sheltering in place or doing what's needed as essential service providers. Now, in this week's podcast, I'll continue our coverage of COVID-19 responses. Now, I'm going to start on the legislative front, an update on the Paycheck Protection Program, or the PPP, which is the program authorized and funded by the CARES Act that's meant to help small businesses, and more importantly, their employees. I'll discuss where negotiations stand on authorizing more funding for the PPP. During this podcast, I'll also provide an update on efforts to include low-income housing tax credit provisions in future COVID-19 legislation. I also have news to share regarding a bill that was introduced in the House that would extend the gain recognition date for the Opportunity Zones incentive. And I'll close with a notice from the IRS on extended deadlines for the low-income housing tax credit, as well as I'll outline some COVID-19 relief guidance provided by HUD. So, if you're ready, let's get started. Many of our listeners and our clients did successfully apply for forgivable loans under the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. However, that $349 billion of funding for PPP loans ran out last week. The initial funding provided by the CARES Act was depleted less than two weeks after the Small Business Administration started accepting applications for the forgivable loans. PPP was designed to provide relief to small businesses and to incentivize employers to keep workers on their payroll. Now, PPP loans are generally eligible for forgiveness, but I'd like to note that the documentation that will be required to prove expenditures are forgiveness eligible is currently unclear. Now, among the certifications that must be made to receive PPP loans is that, and I quote, the uncertainty of current economic conditions makes necessary the loan request to support the ongoing operations of the eligible recipient. Now, the forgiveness application does require making certification that the amount for which forgiveness is requested was used to retain employees, make interest payments on a covered mortgage obligation, make payments on a covered rent obligation, or make covered utility payments. And I'd also note that SBA regulations with respect to forgiveness indicate that 75% of the forgiveness amount must be spent on payroll. Now, in addition to providing funding for PPP loans in the CARES Act, I also want to note that Congress did also fund Economic Injury Disaster Loans, or EIDLs, as a COVID-19 emergency loan program. Now, EIDL provides up to $10,000 of advanced grants to businesses experiencing typical temporary difficulties. And like the PPP, EIDL has also run out of funding and cannot accept new applications. With PPP and EIDL fully subscribed for now, small businesses across the country are left wondering. They're wondering if and when additional relief will be available. Well, this uncertainty also comes at a crucial time as businesses continue to struggle, making tough decisions, and as unemployment continues to soar. On the unemployment front, the Labor Department reports initial unemployment claims for the week ending April 11th sold 5.2 million people. The week before saw 6.6 million claims. In fact, the total job loss since mid-March is now 22 million. This 22 million of job losses over the last few weeks? Well, it's more than all of the new jobs created since 2010, after the end of the previous recession. In short, 
it took only one month to wipe out a decade's worth of job gains. The good news on the small business lending front is that both congressional Republicans and Democrats, as well as the White House, they all agree more funding is needed. But they've been struggling to reach agreement on the terms of a bill that would provide the needed funding. That said, as I record this podcast right now, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in the Senate said this morning, Tuesday, that the White House and Democrats had reached an agreement. And I quote, he said they reached agreement on just about every issue. Minority Leader Schumer also said that he expected the Senate to vote on a funding measure later today, Tuesday. We also are hearing that the House would vote on the measure this Thursday. Now, the challenges in reaching an agreement stem from differences as to what should be included. Republicans want to focus just on providing an additional $250 billion for the PPP and put off other priorities for future legislation. Democrats, on the other hand, want to fund the PPP as well, along with funding for other priorities, with these other priorities including more immediate funding for hospitals, for states, and for local governments. And we'll continue to monitor the status of negotiations, and we'll send breaking news emails and tweets as we learn more. Now, one area of interest to many of our clients is the extent to which legislation that is agreed to will allow community development financial institutions, or CDFIs, those that are not currently authorized SBA lenders, to serve as such with respect to additional funding. The COVID-19 pandemic is exacerbating a multitude of problems throughout the nation. One such problem is the national shortage of affordable housing. In response to this, lead sponsors of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act are urging Congress to include low-income housing tax credit provisions in the next phase of COVID-19 legislation. Now, the lead sponsors of the act are Democrat Susan Delbeni of Washington, Republican Kenny Marchant of Texas, Democrat Donald Beyer of Virginia, and Republican Jackie Walorski of Indiana. Together, they sent a letter to congressional leaders asking for a minimum 4% low-income housing tax credit, which is one of the headline provisions of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act. The so-called 4% low-income housing tax credit percentage typically hovered around 3.2% to 3.3% last year, but it has been dropping precipitously. The rate was had dropped to 3.12% for April and is set for 3.08% for May. This means a decrease in equity for affordable housing. But establishing a permanent 4% floor would generate additional equity for affordable housing, would raise the equity amount, and that would make many more transactions financially feasible. The letter actually cited Novogratz estimates that enacting a minimum 4% rate would develop or preserve more than 68,000 additional rental homes over 10 years. We'll also let you know that Novogratz is in the process of updating these estimates. And I'll share the updated figures as soon as they're available. The good news is that we expect the updated estimates to reveal that the increase in units would be even greater than our previous 68,000 unit estimate. Now, in addition to providing more affordable housing for low-income households, a minimum 4% rate would also help create jobs. And certainly now is a great time to try to help create jobs. The National Association of Home Builders, they estimate that for every 100 units built, 125 full-time equivalent jobs are created for one year. Those 100 units also generate $14.2 million in additional wages and business income, as well as $5.6 million in federal, state, and local tax revenue. Now, Congress did enact a minimum 
4% low-income tax credit in response to the financial crisis back in 2008. So there is precedent for enacting a tax credit floor in the context of a national economic challenge. Now, in addition to a 4% floor, the group also asked for greater flexibility with bond financing requirements, specifically a reduction of the so-called 50% test. What is the 50% test? Well, to qualify for a 4% localizing tax credit on an entire project, at least 50% of a development's aggregate basis must be financed by volume cap taxes and bonds. By lowering the threshold of the 50% test, developers would have flexibility to deal with construction delays and increased cost caused by the pandemic. The provision would also allow state bond agencies to fund a higher number, a greater number of affordable housing properties, although each property would receive less tax and bond funding. Now, the group noted that the COVID-19 pandemic is making the national affordable housing crisis even more challenging. To that end, I do want to have a quick aside here. My partner, Blair Kenser, wrote a Notes from the Democratic blog post recently on the current state of the low-income housing tax credit equity market. I invite you to check out and learn what low-income tax credit investors and syndicators are saying about closing transactions in the current climate. I'll tweet a link to that blog post. Now, back to the low-income tax credit proposals. The Novogratz-led low-income tax credit working group similarly continues to support a 4% floor and a reduced test for bond finance properties. Now, as a response to COVID-19, the working group also supports increasing home funding and funding for USDA rural development programs, as well as creating an emergency rental assistance program. You can read more about these in the May issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. Now, be sure to subscribe to the journal if you don't have an active subscription already. I'll include a subscription link in today's show notes. My colleague, Peter Lawrence, also wrote a blog post about how housing advocates are pushing for $100 billion for emergency rental assistance and $48 billion for home funds. His blog post also outlines the HUD formula-driven resources under the CARES Act. I'll tweet a link to that blog post as well. If you have any questions about what legislative or regulatory relief is available to your developments and incentives, please contact a Novograd professional near you. You can find a link to our services brochure in today's show notes. Now, another effort to help with COVID-19 recovery is the introduction last week of H.R. 6513, Opportunity Zone Extension Act. Six House Republicans introduced the bill to extend the required inclusion date for capital gains deferred through a qualified opportunity fund. Specifically, the bill would extend the inclusion date for those capital gains from December 31, 2026 to December 31, 2030. Now, by extending the Opportunity Zone's incentive, investors, qualified opportunity funds, and qualified active loan community businesses would all have time to spur more economic development in qualifying communities. You can find the bill's text on our Novogratic website. I'll share a link to the bill in today's show notes. Now, I've talked about legislative updates on COVID-19 relief. Now, I'd like to talk about some regulatory relief. Now, I mentioned last week that the IRS issued Notice 2020-23. That notice extended the 180-day deadline to invest in a qualified opportunity fund for certain taxpayers, extending the the period of time until July 15th. Well, the notice also extended several low-income housing tax credit deadlines, or at least gave credit allocating agencies the authority to extend certain deadlines. You can read a blog post by my colleague, Mark Shelburne, 
where he discusses this ability to extend deadlines, most notably with respect to the 10% test, that's the 10% of reasonable effective basis test, with respect to the 24-month period for measuring minimum rehabilitation expenditures, with respect to the annual owner certifications of compliance, and a number of other items. Please read Mark's blog post. I'll tweet it out as well. Once again, that's Mark Shelburne, a caller of mine out of North Carolina. If you have any questions as to how these deadline extensions affect your property, please reach out to a Novogratic office near you. Next, I have some news on COVID-19 regulatory relief guidance from HUD. Last week, HUD issued a notice that gave public housing authorities, Indian tribes, and tribally designated housing entities waiver authority. Under the notice, it's notice PIH 2020-05, these entities, PHAs, Indian tribes, tribally designated housing entities, may waive some processes to help expedite alternative procedures. The notice lists requirements that are waived for public housing, the Housing Choice Voucher, and Native American programs. Now, some examples of waive requirements include the ability to waive the requirement that a Housing Choice Voucher term extension must be in accordance with a PHA's administrative plan, the ability to waive delay or off alternatives for site inspections and other compliance reviews, flexibility on rules regarding income and rent limits, and restrictions on evictions or the termination of a tenant's lease due to income levels. Now, the Lotus it does include many other provisions, and I'll include a link in the notice to today, in today's show notes so you can review the changes in detail. The purpose of these changes is to allow agency staff to provide stable housing that is based on local circumstance and need. This notice is effective until it's amended, superseded, or rescinded. Now, HUD last week also issued two mortgagee letters for property owners, that is, property owners with Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, and HUD loans. The first letter is mortgagee letter 2020-09 and provides the protocol to request mortgage forbearance for FHA loans under the CARES Act. This protocol is in effect from March 27th through the end of the year. That is, unless the National Emergency Declaration is terminated before then. The second letter, mortgagee letter 2020-11, provides debt service reserve requirements for HUD 223F loans that are in process. This is due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the real estate market. Now, the requirements in these mortgagee letters will remain in effect until HUD determines the real estate markets have stabilized. Now, if you have questions about how this guidance from HUD might affect your loans, properties, or compliance, I encourage you to reach out to a Novograd near office near you to discuss some of the general requirements. As always, with respect to these letters, you do need to discuss them with your own legal counsel. Well, that brings you to the end of this week's report. I do want to let you know the Novograd Rent and Income Limit Calculator? Well, it's been updated with 2020 data. If you haven't used it yet, I encourage you to check out the resources free. Also, remember to register for Novograd's webinar on 2020 HUD Rent and Income Limits. It'll be this Friday, April 24th. I'll include a registration link and a link to the Novograd Rent and Income Limit Calculator in today's show notes. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogradic. Be safe. And thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. 
archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novograd and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.